hope you do. Turn with me to John chapter 11. So, so last week we were, um, well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll read our text and then I'll tell you how it got here. Um, as we've been going through chapter to, through the book of John, we're in John 11 and Alan covered in large part uh, John 11, 1 through 16. Um, and uh, we were all set up to move into the next section. Alan and I talked about it last week and um, <laughs> during, the, during his sermon last week, I was all set up to move to the next section. Um, Jesus says, I'm the way, you know, uh, I, I am the resurrection of life. And in the midst of Alan's sermon, I suddenly just realized, I was like, wait, there's, there's something else really here that I think is timely and would be good for us. So I told him afterwards, I said, Alan, I'm not going there. You get to do that in two weeks. Um, so I'm going to cover primarily John 9, uh, or John 11, 9 through 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11. But I want to read um, the first 16 verses just to put it in context, okay? Um, so if you're there, uh, John 11, starting verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who, was anointed, uh, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her, si- and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said, or he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just, were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is also called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word, your specific self-revelation, may you illumine our hearts. May the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ shine once more into our hearts. Perhaps even some for the first time. That you would help us to walk when it's dark. Would you bless us now? Come and meet with us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So let me kind of help give you a, a framework for for kind of what I'm seeing here. 
I've titled this sermon, thank you, I had a great picture I wanted up there, and I was like going to really impress you, because I had a picture and a sermon title, but nothing else beyond that, you know, because I don't don't do PowerPoint or anything, so, um, but yeah, that didn't happen, so, (laughs) Um, anyways, I've titled this sermon, Sure-Footed Faith in Times of Darkness, Um, and specifically darkness, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about death, because in this passage, there is a looming cloud of darkness, of, of death. You, you've got two primary parties involved here. You've got Mary and Martha, and, and they're dealing with the effects of death. Lazarus has died. Right? The whole rest of the chapter is, is dealing in large part with that, or, or at least a, uh, a significant portion of it. So they're dealing with the effects of death. And the disciples here are, are seeking to avoid it. You know, in, as John's pinning this gospel, he, he could have left this section out, right? Because he's going, he's, he's going to Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus to, from the dead. So he could have told the story, ended there, and Jesus says, We're, okay, he stayed two days and then he went. But John, who John was present, remember John's one of the disciples, so he's present here with Jesus. Message comes, Lazarus is sick, Jesus decides he's going to stay. He says this isn't going to end in death. And John's recalling this, and he's, and he's saying, he's pausing here, and he's giving us a window into Jesus' conversation with the disciples. The disciples don't want to go because they fear death for themselves, but also for Jesus. We just left because the Jews were trying to kill you, and now you want to go back. So there's this looming cloud of, of death that hangs over this whole passage. And I think it's timely for us as well. I, I think it's timely because life changes for us when life is threatened, right? We just had, uh, we just had a couple weeks ago, we had our safety seminar. If you were here uh, you know, for that, we talked about, you know, what does that look like? You know, what does what life and worship look like in a church now that there's the potential for outside threat? You know, things change. We just celebrated Alan's birthday, 40 years, right? Alan told me a funny story that in that, one, that morning, Cal, you know, Calvin comes in and there's these black balloons sitting around and and Calvin says, Dad, Daddy, don't you like your balloons? And Calvin and Alan says, well, yeah, but why are they black? And Calvin looks at him and says, death. <laughs> now, see, we laugh at that, you know, because nobody is expecting Alan to die right now, right? You know, and we, it's tongue-in-cheek, you know, we laugh. He's 40, okay, over the hill, you know, meaning they're down the downside. Okay, but the reminder is every birthday marches us forward toward that date, whether you're 10, 40, 78 doesn't matter. I know I mean I'm half his age, right? Okay. But but as I get older, I'm I'm realizing my life is becoming more behind me. Okay? The coronavirus, right? You know, I mean the threat of uh, of of this little organism to to our Somewhat peaceful way of life, right? It shakes things up. No, you go to the grocery store, no toilet paper, right? Okay, you, the, 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 the watching the news and seeing, are they going to close the schools? Is my, is my, 
you know, is my work going to shut down? What is that going to do for us? What do we need to do? Life changes when life is threatened. But life changes when life is gone. The death of a loved one. I know many of you have experienced that in the not too distant past. The death of a loved one. It shakes us, especially when that's unexpected. How many times have you heard someone say you've read, read you know, on Facebook or something where someone's passed away and, and, and people are mourning over it and we should mourn and people say they were gone too soon? No. Snuffed out in the prime of life. You know, all these, these statements that we give when, when a life is taken so unexpectedly. Death causes us to question our lives, our purpose, and even the existence and the value of God. You see, I think I was thinking about this. Why does that cloud hang so heavily? Why does that why does that happen? Why does our life shift and have those shifts? And they're big shifts. Or there's the potential for, for big shifts. When, our, when, uh, when life is threatened and when life is gone. I, I think it's because we want to live life long enough to fulfill our lives. And we want others to do the same. And when that time frame is threatened, we consider changing our course. And when the lifeline with someone else is cut short, we're tempted to despair. And so I, I, think, I think this message that Jesus gives us is very, very timely for, for many of us personally, but also just where we are as a, as a culture. Because I, I think Jesus gives a warning here. Okay, th- this, is, this is where I'm going. Jesus gives the warning. He says in verse 9 and 10 twice, effectively, don't stumble. That's what he's saying. Don't stumble. And I think we read that and we'll just gloss over it very easily. We'll gloss over it very easily and we'll miss what he's really saying. So, so the question is, what does it mean to stumble and then how do we not stumble? Those are the two questions I want to answer. Okay? So the stumbling. Jesus says, beware of stumbling. Now he's not talking of moral failure. I think that's where we often go. We think, don't stumble. Okay, all right. Well, that means, you know, don't sin sexually. Don't lie. Don't slander people. Don't do these things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't break Ten Commandments. Don't, you know, these moral, horizontal, relational things specifically. I think we think of that. He's not talking about moral failure. If you try and squeeze that into this context, it makes no sense. He's speaking about dis- disobedience to the will of God. That, that's what he's speaking of. Okay, follow this. The disciples, Jesus says, we're going to, we're going to Bethany. We're going to go see, we're going to go where Lazarus is. Lazarus is dead. We're going to go there. And the disciples say, don't go. We, we're, well, let's not go because you were just going to get killed. And Jesus' response is a warning. Don't stumble. Don't stumble. You see, for Christ... Obedience is to do the works, that's the miracles and the teachings, for which the Father had sent him, and thus reveal that he's the Savior of the world. 
That's, that's what it means for Jesus to not stumble. And so the warning for the disciples is don't stumble and don't cause me to stumble. Right, John 9, uh, 4 through 5 gives us clarity on this. We, we covered this, uh, you know, to some degree, taking that, that diamond of the word and twisting it a, a, a little bit, uh, you know, to, to see this. But Jesus said in John 9, 4 and 5, he said, we must work the works of him who sent me, that's the Father, as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. What's he saying? He's saying, I've got, I've got a mission here. I've got something I'm supposed to do that the Father has sent me. And while I'm here, I'm the light of the world. I'm to, I, I am to show that I'm the divine Son of God who's the Savior of the world. That's it. So stumbling for Christ would be to pull back from that mission. And Jesus is very, very, very committed to seeing that through to completion. Remember, different gospel, Jesus and Peter are having this conversation. Jesus is, ju- uh, Peter's just, you know, he's just expunged this wonderful explanation of who Jesus is. And then Jesus says, all right, now I've got to go to the cross and die. And Peter goes, no, 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 don't do that. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. G- Peter, in that moment, is a stumbling block for Jesus to fulfill that mission. He's very, very committed to that mission. And so that's what it looks like for Jesus here in this context. He's, he's, he's got to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, that's what he said. Remember when, when, when Jesus gets the word about what's, gonna ha- what's happening to Lazarus, and he says this, this sickness is not to end in death, but what? Okay, here, he's pulling back the curtain. He's saying, here's my mission. Here's my, here's my mission. The sickness isn't, it didn't end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. That's his mission. That's why he's delayed. And we'll get to that more in a minute. But that's why he's delayed. So that's his mission. And so he says, don't stumble. Don't stumble. So the question is, how do we navigate these times of darkness without stumbling? Okay, L- let me bring these two points together, okay? Because I think at this point it's easy to get, to get lost. For Jesus, Jesus here, for Jesus, stumbling is pulling back from that will of God, okay? You're not Jesus, clearly. You're not called to go and necessarily raise someone from the dead, okay? And I'll, and I'll try and bring this together as we get towards the end, okay? But the looming cloud that's here is the darkness of death. And so Jesus, as Jesus speaks, he's speaking to the, to the, to the disciples. He's giving in a word of admonishment and warning. Okay, this isn't Jesus speaking to himself, that this, that this is only for him. It's for the disciples, but then John writes it so that it would be an admonishment for us too. So the warning is, don't stumble. And the disciples, and I think, it's, I think we can also say the same is true for Mary and for Martha, as we'll see later in the chapter, the danger there is for them to stumble as well. For the looming threat of, uh, of death and despair to cause them to shift course. 
And so Jesus brings this right to the front, and he gives that warning. So the question then is, how do we not stumble? How do we not stumble? I think Jesus gives two answers here. Here we are. How do we have sure-footed faith in these times of darkness? One, Jesus says in verse 9, he answers and he says, are there not 12 hours in a day? Are there not 12 hours in the day? Disciples, just as there were 12 hours of daylight for someone to travel or to, to put their hands to the plow and work, so there was a set of my amount of time for Jesus to do the work for which he was sent. There's a fixed amount of time for Jesus to do this, and no enemy could shorten that time. He says, don't be afraid of those Jews. Don't be afraid of those. Consider how many times Jesus, the crowds were getting ready to stone Jesus, and he slipped through their midst, right? There's a fixed there's a fixed point at which Jesus would go to the cross and he was confident the Lord is going to funnel and guard me and protect me until I get to that point. I'm not going to die a minute too soon, though I must die. There's a fixed point. And so there's a fixed time for us as well. Think of Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talking about worry. Remember, he's trying to give comfort to people who are worrying about their life, right? And he talks about the, the birds. He says, no, not a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the sovereign knowledge and hand of God. I think the context of that is pretty clear. It's not just that God knows it, but that his hand's on it. If God only knows it and his hand isn't on it, then that really doesn't make sense. It's not really comforting, okay? And it's not just worry, because the next thing he says, he used the illustration of the bird, and he says, you who by being worried, can you add a single hour to your life? And I, and I don't think that's just the, the mental anguish of worrying. You know, I, I think he's meaning they're the full, you know, the full concept, like God's like looking at you, just kind of wringing your hands, going, I hope you, fi- you know, to pick the right thing. He's, he's saying, by you worrying and fretting, and being in busyness, you're not going to add any more hours to your life. You can't extend that any more than, if I can bring it into context here, any more than you could add another hour to daylight. Now the passage, Hebrews 9.27, the author of Hebrews says, For it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So this should give us comfort that if we're Christians, if we're followers of Christ, that the Lord is not going to take you out of this world until that appointed time. And He will guard everything around that to make you more like Christ. Be comforted that your time is fixed. Now, let's call a spade a spade. Your time is not fixed up until the point you can buy the nice, shiny new car that you got your heart set on. That may never happen. It's not fixed to the point where you're going to eventually get to this stellar career that you've really been trying to find. That may never happen. It's not fixed so that you can get the promotion. It's not fixed so that you can, whatever that is that says me, that says glorify me, it's fixed to the point that 
He wants you to glorify Him. And, and this is where we get more into the next point. But let me, let, me, let me drive this home just a little further. Because we're to be engaged in a work. Just as Jesus had work to do, so we have work to do. His time wasn't up until His work was completed, so do we. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he says, For you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. We have a purpose. We have a purpose. Think of, think of this. Right? Make this very, very practical, okay? For comfort, but then also for, for, for encouragement and to stir us up. I, imagine, imagine if everyone around you, including yourself, had a countdown timer that just appeared above their heads, now, one, that would give you courage. You know, perhaps, I think for some of us at least, yeah, I'm seeing the faces. This is clicking with you, you know. It might give you courage that says, okay, great, I'm not going to die on a car wreck going home. But you'd also look around and go, okay, that person's time is shorter than I anticipated. Perhaps my time is shorter than I anticipated. How would you live differently knowing that your time is fixed. How would you live differently knowing the purpose for which you live? And that goes into Jesus' next point, the purpose and the nature of our work. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? The time's fixed. But we've got to be about the work. It says, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in, here, in him. Now, this is, a, this is a peculiar metaphor because the lesson is, if, it's, if we take it at face value, the lesson is very clear. All right, walk in the day and not at night. Walk in the daytime because the light's here. Don't walk at night. But when I've gone hiking and backpacking, we, we do that typically in the daytime. I've tried hiking to a water source at night. It's very difficult even with a headlamp. You know, you, you, so you walk in the daytime, not at night. I don't try to navigate a lot in my house even at night with the lights off. It's just not a good idea because I'll stumble and fall. That's what it says at face value. But when we consider where, where, where Scripture goes after this, the New Testament goes on to tell us that we're actually in a twilight time. Right, John 9, 4 says, night is coming. Jesus says this, he says, night is coming. Meaning there's a time when I'm going to be gone out of this world. The, the grand illumination that Christ brought to the world when he, before the, the, before the, the crucifixion, was gone. Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, the night is almost gone, the day is near. John same, same John who wrote the gospel wrote towards the end of his life as he's in prison in the island of Patmos. And he says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 1 John 2.8. So if we, if we take where we are, we're in a twilight area. We're in a twilight area. So I, I think this is what John is trying to convey here. I think he's trying to say, don't walk in the darkness. 
but the world is dark around you. So cling to the light and walk in its path. Cling to the will of God that's shown to you in the scriptures and you walk in that light. You see, the disciples were blindly trying to distract Jesus from the work he'd come to do. And Mary and Martha were at risk of doubting Christ's true nature. He didn't come. It was hope he'd come, heal Lazarus, and he didn't come. And Jesus' sole mission is, is to exalt God and to show that and, and, you know, through, through his glory. And so what would strengthen someone's faith in Jesus more? Healing a sick man or raising a dead man? Raising a dead man. So Jesus is, is about that, and that's why he's delayed. He's delayed so that he can raise the dead man, and that just further shows who he is. That was Jesus' purpose. Do you see that? There are some things that are greater than physical death. There's a lot more going on at play here than the physical well-being of an individual. And so that's our mission as well, is to exalt Christ, to make much of Him. Do people see Jesus as the glorious Son of God more clearly, less clearly, or not at all because of you? This is the mission we're called to. You see, our mission is not, as Christians, to live a good, comfortable, moral life, avoid the potholes of, pot, potholes of suffering and pain, choose a good career, have a few kids, hitting retirement at the right time, and then slipping quietly and peacefully into death at about 83 years of age with friends and family surrounding us. I think if we're honest, a lot of us would define that as fulfillment, as, 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 as a fulfilled life, as good purpose. But if we look at this passage, we look at the context, it's about living a life that demonstrates to the world that Jesus is our greatest treasure. That's it. This doesn't give us a license to live carelessly. If you're sick, I go still go to the doctor. Right? Wear your seatbelt when you go home. There's a difference between wisdom and foolishness, for sure. But it may cause you to take more of a risk for the gospel Risk that the rest of the world will look at as foolish and even crazy. Because when you look at Jesus here, what he does, the rest of the world would say is foolish and crazy. Right? You're crazy to go back there. Because they'll kill you. And Jesus is confident. He's confident that, that the Father has work for him to do. Now, a lot of questions, I think, come up at this point. So rather than iron out details of what you're to do, what you're to not do, I want to take just a couple minutes and just give some fire for the flame of faith. Because the point is to follow the revealed will of God where He has you now. So rather than tell you exactly all the ins and outs of how to walk, because I can't answer all those, rather just shine the light. So here's what I want to do. I want to briefly hit two passages, two light passages 
that I think will help drive home this point. What are we to be about? What are we to be about? And then I want to tell a story. Quickly. All right. Let's go. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. I'll read this and, and comment on it. Okay, Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, primarily Gentile church. And he's, he's writing to them, giving them encouragement. He's heard the gospel has come to them. It's seeded, it's planted, they've grown. And he's writing to encourage them. He says, verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See that language in there? Walk, right? Walk, follow the revealed will of God that you'll know what you're supposed to do. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness, fastness, and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Okay, stop right there. Paul says, I'm constantly praying these things for you that you'll know what the will of God is and that you'll walk in that. And then he adds two more verses. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Why did Paul add those verses? Like, granted, if you know more of Colossians, I mean, he's going to go on and he's really going to exalt Jesus. Right? I mean, he's really going to exalt Jesus and then go on to give further ad, you know, admonishment and encouragement about walking in, you know, uh, walking in faith. But why did he add those there? I think it's so that it would lay a firm ground for their walking, for the work that they are doing. Paul praised those things earlier. And that they would be true in the Colossian Christians, in these Gentile Christians, because God has done the great redemptive work in them through Jesus. They've been redeemed through, from darkness. A life where God was not. And they've been brought into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. A place where God's rule exists. There's pursuit of holiness, love, life truth all of these things this passage echoes very much paul's defense to king agrippa in acts chapter 26 where paul's recalling jesus own words to him saying that that paul would take the gospel to the gentiles and would open their eyes thus rescuing from the darkness of satan's domain to the kingdom of god that's what he's saying the foundation for anything we do christians is the gospel of Christ, that he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into light. That's the foundation. That's what strengthens us 
when darkness looms over us. That's what gives us confidence that we're walking well. It's what gives us hope when sicknesses exist, when illness exists, when life doesn't turn out the way we think that it should. We come back to our foundation. All right, second. Second set of verses. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7. Follow the, follow the argument flow here. Paul, Paul's writing about the ministry that he has. The ministry of a new covenant. The ministry of reconciliation. He says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So what are we doing? What are we about? We're commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We want to see people brought from darkness to light. And he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world is blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Why? You get to the word for, ask why. Before you go any further, ask why. Why does Paul say this? Why does he, why does he consider, as he says to the Philippians, all things as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus? Verse 6 and 7, he gives a phenomenal answer. He says, for God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. The very God who spoke light into existence in the beginning is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. In a nutshell, Paul's saying, look, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and we endure sufferings and we don't despair, we don't lose hope. Because God has shown the light of the precious value of Jesus in our hearts. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. That's how we walk well, is by keeping that foundation in view. Let me tell a brief story. And I'm grateful for Antoine and Shanna, I believe, for posting a video link for this on online um, it's the story of a preacher uh, 1912 on the uh, uh, on the Titanic his name is John Harper he was a Scottish evangelist and in uh, early 1912 he was invited to go to Chicago and speak I don't remember it was at a I don't know if they had conferences you know but he was invited to speak at a gathering of believers and so he and his young daughter got on a boat it was called the Titanic sailing for for uh, for America, and uh, he was to speak, and of course you know the story of the uh, of the Titanic. Um, but uh, he had put his daughter, his young daughter, to bed. I don't know how old she was, um, but she was very young, young enough for him to hold. Um, and he put his young daughter to bed the uh, the evening 
just before the iceberg hit and he was uh, reported being up in the word of God you know that night and when the iceberg struck um, and he realized what was going on everybody had to make a decision what do you do and uh, he'd been known early throughout the trip of being seen sitting and having conversations with people and just talking about Jesus and talking about the glory of God and the gospel um, you know even on this boat before this had happened this was this was his drumbeat um, but the iceberg hit or the boat hit the iceberg and um, he had a decision what do I do he woke up his daughter wrapped her in a blanket ran out with his life jacket on to one of the lifeboats kissed his daughter handed his daughter to uh, to one of the attendants in the lifeboats and then turned around and took his life jacket and handed it to another passenger who was getting on a lifeboat uh, and, and gave up his seat, essentially. Um, and a as the boat was sinking, he was reported to be seen up at one of the, the higher points on his knees praying for the souls of the men and women and children who were on that boat. And as the boat sank and he slipped into the water, he found uh, a section of uh, debris that he was able to cling to. And as best he could, he swam to individuals who were in the water and pleaded with them to come to Christ and to know Christ. And before he died, there was a man who was in the water and, and, and John called out to him you know, and, and asked, do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus? And this man was actually pulled from the water and rescued, gave his life to Christ that night. And he reports, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm John Harper's last convert because John slipped and succumbed to, to the waters. Now, I say that and I tell that story because I think we listen to that and, and, and so many things come to our mind. Was it foolish, you know? Was, was, did he do the right thing? Did he do the wrong thing? You know, I'm not going to answer that. You know, what you do see from this story is a man who treasured Christ above all else. I don't know anything about it, else about him, but from that one story, I know what he treasured. I know what he treasured. So in final application, let me bring, it, bring this to a close. When darkness looms over us, whether that's the threat of life or whether that's the looming despair of a life that's already lost, may it drive us to the gospel, bring us back to the foundation. And we cling to the glory of God and the gospel and help others see that same light. That's your purpose, church. That's your mission, Christian. That's what keeps us from stumbling when death comes knocking at the door. So let me pray for us as we close and uh, I'll give us a benediction. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for the encouragement of your word. I thank you that there are 12 hours in the day that, that, that time is fixed. That we're not puppets father we do make real choices but our choices are so limited and we are so fragile i look out at at just the decisions i've made in this last week because of this tiny virus that's that's floating around and i see how frail and weak that i am and i thank you father that you give that promise nothing can separate us from the love of christ because you have designed and ordained to make us like Jesus, who was the light of the world, so that we might be a reflection of him. Father, I see myself falling so 
far short of this encouragement I've said today. So much of this is for me. So, Father, would you do this work in me, in our church, in our, in our body? Give us courage. Shine the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ further into our hearts. Illuminate us that we might see so that we might then walk well. Would you do this in us, Father, for your glory? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.